Dear Lord, only you can enact grace at the same time as you pronounce judgment. We thank you for your love towards mankind that you chose not to destroy them at Babel as you had before the flood, but because your purposes still had to play out throughout history so that you might receive the maximum glory. You chose to spare mankind from their immediate rebellion, and in so doing, you created the languages of this world. We thank you for the beauty that you can create even in punishment. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. I have to admit, one of the reasons I chose to do Genesis was just so I could preach on this passage someday soon, because I absolutely love language, and this is where they all came from. This was the very root of the languages that we hear all around the world, and we do when we hear other languages, we recognize the beauty in them. But we also should recognize this stemmed from a punishment that was handed down to mankind for rebellion. But each one of these languages was not a creation of man. It was a direct creation from the hand of God. So here, 1,500 years after creation, God stepped in once again to create again. And he created the languages. But here is our main point for this morning. God will not be mocked. We saw last week how the Tower of Babel was an effort of rebellion against God. His will will not be thwarted by any evil plan that man can come up with. And what he has said will come about perfectly. All of his promises we can stand confidently on. And we see those, we see that here, that when we walk in the will of God, he will hold us up. When we walk away from the will of God, he will redirect our paths because his will will come about. Now this passage in Genesis, Genesis 11, 1 through 9, I think is some of the best literature in all of scripture which naturally makes it some of the best literature that has ever been written on earth. And it is a privilege to get to study it because Moses was an incredible author. Not only that, but he is recording God's words in response to man's high culture. We have a high culture today as well. Here is the author Joyce Carol Oates. She's one of my favorites. And this is a microfiction that she wrote. Now, the Genesis... 11, 1 through 9 is essentially a microfiction, smaller than a short story. It's pithy, and every single word counts. Moses didn't spare anything in writing as succinctly as possible the events of Babel. And so it can rightly be classified, just like Joyce Carol Oates here, as a microfiction. But just like at the Tower of Babel, these, this human culture that we develop tends to glorify man rather than glorifying God. Her entire story, this short microfiction, is four words long. In fact, it's no longer than the very title for the story. The widow's first year, I kept myself alive. Now, when I taught literature in Korea, this would be one of the first stories I would start with to show them the, cho the importance of word choice. Every single word points towards her conclusion. 
This widow had a rough first year and she had to go it alone. You take out any of these words and it loses that emphasis, but you add any more words and it becomes needlessly cumbersome. She said all she needed to see, say in this pithy little story. Well, the creators of the Tower of Babel said all they needed to say in their pithy little story. Come, let us brick with bricks and let us burn with burning. Their high culture, their extremely intelligent use of language, here in this passage, Genesis 11, 5 through 9, will be responded to by God's higher culture. He answers them in their words, in the very way that they spoke, and he does so, so much better. I was incredibly impressed this week as I went through the Hebrew and just noticed how rich this passage is. So I hope to share that with you this morning. And uh, towards the end, please forgive me, I will nerd out a bit with some linguistics. Um, so if you haven't fallen asleep by then, you might fall asleep. So I've, uh, I've put in a little uh, interactive thing that we'll do towards the end. So be ready to answer some really easy questions that I could ask my sixth graders in Korea. Hopefully you'll be able to answer them too. But Moses, the wonderful author that he is, has once again structured this passage in a chiasm. A chiasm pairs the first parts with the last parts and is essentially an inverted outline. And the purpose of this chiasm is to point to the main point. The chiasm began with all the earth having one language. It set the stage for what was about to happen. And rather than scattering abroad, they found one location and they all settled there. And once they settled there, they began to speak one to another. We saw that they had the same borders and they had the same ideas about what to do. Those ideas, they said, come. This is come together, the sense of unity, and let us make bricks. Let us begin to build and let us make for ourselves a name. And let us build a city and a tower. This was what they intended to do, and this was their rebellion against God, who had told them to do explicitly the opposite, to go and spread out through all the earth and to populate all the earth. Instead, they say, no, we would like to stay here, and we would like to rule ourselves. And so the center of this chiasm, the main point that Moses is driving us towards, is when God comes down. This is the turn in the story. This is the shift in the narrative. When the Lord comes down, he comes down to see that city and tower which man had built for themselves. And he decides, just as they had said, come, let us come together. He says, come, let us go and mix them up. Let us confuse them. <clears throat> and then they were no longer able to speak to one another the same language. He scattered them away from that one point where they had chosen to settle and the languages of the earth were wholly confused. So this is what we are looking a little deeper at this morning, this second half of Moses outline. And it starts with the descent of God, God condescending down to man who had lifted him up as if he were in the heights of heaven with God, as if he could compete with God. We notice right away, the Lord has to come down. 
even to see what they are doing. This is not the same kind of coming down as we see on Mount Sinai. It's a different structure in the Hebrew, where in Exodus 19.20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, an indicative statement plus a location. No, this is more like his coming down in the sense of destroying Egypt. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them. This is the same structure, an indicative statement plus a purpose clause. Why has he come down? He has come down to intercede. He has come down to step into human affairs and to affect them. And so here in Genesis 11.5, we have his purpose statement. He came to see the city and the tower. He came to make his observation so that he might make his judgment, his assessment. He's done this before. In fact, last time he did it, the flood came from his assessment. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When God comes down to observe, he doesn't just observe for no reason. He observes to make a final judgment on the issue. After he created the entire universe, the creation in which we live, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. This was his assessment of creation and he told mankind they had one rule don't eat the tree from the or the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what does man do eve goes and makes her own observation and conclusion contrary to god's the woman saw that the tree was good for food contrary to god's assessment man decided to liberate himself from god's word and it resulted in the fall. And so God came down to look once again at man's liberation of himself. This city, and especially this tower, which stood in the midst of the city and probably operated as some sort of uh, idolatrous tower, the center point of religion in the Babylonian city. Now remember this and that connects these two, the city and the tower, doesn't mean that these were separate things. It was not the city over here and the tower in another location, but this is the vav speciale, which doubles down on itself. The city is the greater location and especially that point in the center of this city, the tower. God is focused in on this tower. Now, there's some disagreement as to what stage they had completed the building of Babel until. Some say that they were not yet complete by the time God came and scattered them. Others say that they were complete because the verb tense here is the perfect tense, which means that there was some level of completion. Something was done. We've got two things here, though. We've got a city and we've got a tower. So I would say both are correct. 
One of these is finished and one will never be finished. The tower was completed. This is what God came down to observe. But the city had no intention of being complete. It would expand its borders to include everyone born into that oppressive nation. The city would continue to grow with man, but they would not spread over the world. They would rule themselves from their own throne. And so the city was not complete. That's why when they stopped building the city, for the first time in the whole narrative in verse 8, the tower is not mentioned. The tower was already done. But now the Lord came down to see the city and to see that tower which the sons of men had built. This is the first time he calls them the sons of men in this narrative as well. Before they were called the whole earth. The whole earth had the same language. This was what's called a synecdoche, which is using a whole as a part. They're talking about the whole of the world, but they're referring to the part in it that spoke one language, the people. Moses has gone out of his way not to mention them yet. He refers to them as they elsewhere. Here, for the first time, he names them sons of men. Now, the NASB does a fantastic job smoothing out the translation for easy readability, but I disagree with one choice that they made here. They made a singular man into the plural men in English. These are the sons of man, the sons of Adam. Adam became a name for all of humanity because all of humanity comes from Adam. But I think Moses has a very specific purpose looking at the context of Genesis 11.5 to show the puniness of man. Remember, Adam's name comes from dirt. God descends from heaven to come down and look at the sons of dirt, the sons of dust. Just like in the fall, God reminds them of their lowly state. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man is nothing compared to God. Man's efforts to build a tower up to heaven still does not even factor in to God's power. God has to condescend down to earth to look at these little men who raise their pitchforks against God. Isaiah 40.22 tells us, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. God is all-powerful, and man has no hope in heaven or earth of superseding God. And so God makes his judgment. He makes his decision based on what he observes there in Babel. And the reason for his judgment, he states here explicitly, they are one people and they all have the same language. This is also the first time, not just in the narrative here, but in all of Genesis, that the term people is used, the Hebrew word am. This collectivizes them all into one group. 
later in Hebrew culture, they would have what's called the Am Haaretz, the people of the land. This was a group that was looked down upon, the group that didn't follow the law of Moses. They grouped them into one people to discuss them. God here is grouping all of the people of earth into one group and saying they are all united. They are one people and they all have one language. Now this use of same is actually the same Hebrew word as the one people. This is the one language. Again, the NASB smooths this out so it's a natural English, which is an excellent thing to do, but it's good to dive a little deeper at times too. In fact, what is translated here same is almost never translated same. It's almost always translated one, sometimes each or first in a series or first as in the highest. In fact, even getting down to that smallest little sliver, same is not in here. Same is not the natural translation of this word, although it is the translation of this sense. However, they all have one language because remember, Moses doesn't waste a single word. So I think we should stick with his words wherever possible. They are one people with one language and remember what that language is. It's not here the usual word for language, which is tongue, but it's the word for lip, which doubles as their word for border. Remember, they were told to go out and separate, to draw borders between themselves, to honeycomb, as it were, so God could deal with each one individually and not have to destroy the whole earth for coming together and corrupting itself because this is the nature of man. So they are of one language, one lip, one border, and they all have one word. They all have one idea, one thought that's expressed vocally. This use as well of same is rare. They all used one language and they all used one word. You can see why the NASB smooths this out. Most translations do. Because unless you're doing a very detailed study of what exactly is going on here, it's unnatural to say they're all of one word. This is not a plural word. This doesn't mean they use the same set of vocabulary, though they do. They're all of the same thought. This Hebrew word devarim has that connotation. They all have the same ideas about what they're doing. They're all in agreement. In Genesis 10.5, and also in 10.20-10.31, where we saw the nations and the languages of the earth divided, Moses used a different word for language. He used that word for tongue. When Moses switches his vocabulary, it's never on accident. He does it on purpose. He's drawing a distinction here. He is hammering down the point. Man has collected themselves in a single group and God is dealing with them in a single group. They are one people and they have one language. And the result of being one people and having one language, one thought, one idea of what they are going to do is that they began, this is what they began to do, rebellion. They began to rebel against God 
Do you remember the divine institution that God gave man in the Noahic covenant? He told them to govern themselves. And this was supposed to be a means of keeping sin from corrupting the world. Man was supposed to rule responsibly over himself in accordance with God's righteousness to protect life. God gave them the means of protecting life when he said, go out and populate the earth. And here he brings them together. Nimrod brings them together under one roof and abuses this institution of government. This was what they began to do. They began to rebel. And so it says, now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. Again, I think, actually, this is probably the only place here in the NASB I disagree with their translation wholesale. I think they smoothed it out a little too much and they lost what was going on. In fact, they made it sound by connotation as if man would be capable now of things that were beyond his own nature. That's not what's going on. In fact, to do a more literal or wooden translation of this passage, the actual words mean, now no plan to manufacture will be withheld from them. Their intents on this earth, the things that they are capable of doing, they won't stop. If I don't step in, if I don't intercede, these plans which they have that are of rebellion, these things which they're doing, forming, creating, remember this word, Isha, until the Babel narrative was reserved for God and enacting God's will. Genesis 11.4 was the first time it was used in rebellion against God openly as a plan. Let us make for ourselves a name. This is to create out of something as opposed to creating from nothing which it wouldn't even make sense to use with man because man is absolutely incapable of creating out of nothing. The Hebrew word here, bara. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't use anything else to create this. He created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. But here in Genesis 1.26, we see God using this isha, something that is, again, reserved for him. Let us make man in our image not creating out of nothing, but already on day five, he had created biological life, which he created out of nothing. It was something new beyond the heavens and the earth that he had put into the heavens and the earth with the animals. And also his own likeness. God put animal life together with his own likeness, two things that already existed. And he created out of something, man, The only time this is used in rebellion against God is to ask Eve, what is this that you have done? What did you do? She didn't really contemplate ahead of time very much. She acted rashly. Here in Babel, they're making plans to do for themselves, contrary to God's will. and it won't be withheld from them. It won't be out of their reach. 
their corruption will see no boundary because the boundaries that were supposed to be drawn have not been drawn. So God is going to step in to draw those boundaries. It is interesting, this same word is only used twice in the Hebrew Bible, this beyond reach. The only other time it's used is in Job 42.2, where Job pronounces that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's very true. No purpose of God's can be thwarted, including his purpose that man go and spread across the earth and populate it. And so God's response mocks man's plans, mocks man's evil plans by repeating their language of high culture right back to them. God says, as he reasons within the Godhead, come on, let us go down. Just as man had said, come, let us build. Come, let us make bricks with bricks. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. God says, all right, come let us go down there and confuse their language. God will not be mocked. Four times he reasons with himself in the Godhead. The first is at creation. When he decides on the purpose for creation, the purpose for planting man in the garden as the head of the, of the universe, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let him rule over this creation. This was God's plan. This was his purpose. He decided ahead of time that that's how it was going to be. So at creation and then at the fall, God once again convenes his divine counsel of the Godhead. And the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So what did God do? He stopped him from this. He barred him from the garden. He sent him out. What is he doing at Babel? He is stopping them from doing what will continue to harm them. And he is going to send them out, as it were, from the Eden of their own creation because it's an Eden of corruption. He reasons in the Godhead once again in Genesis 6-7 before the flood. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. Now this doesn't explicitly say that it is within the Godhead, but by context we can see that it is. Because it's not until eight verses later that God finally divulges this plan to Noah. God is reasoning with himself as he's making observations. Once he has decided upon the consequences, he goes and tells Noah. The fourth time now that he reasons with himself in the Godhead is at the Babel dispersion. Come, let us go down. If you remember back in September, I said there are four major divisions in Genesis 1 through 11. Creation, fall, flood, and dispersion. And at each one of these points, God reasons in the Godhead what to do about mankind. These mark changes in the social structure of mankind. And so here, something integral is changing about man's structure. 
how he interacts amongst himself. And remember that this is all mocking man. Come, let us go down. Let us descend. Just as man had said, come, let us build for ourselves. Just like in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Man imposing his will over God's, God sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. That's what he's doing here. And Moses has recorded that for us in the text. Moses is going out of his way to show God's condescension of mankind. I have way too many slides, so I'm going to skip a few. God says, let us confuse their language. This is the Hebrew word for mix. He is mixing them up, and then he's going to cast them out over the earth. We already saw the result of that mixing. It was 70 different language groups enumerated in Genesis 10. But there's something very interesting here about what God's doing with his intention. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language. This parallels with the builders of Babel deciding to make bricks. God is literally going to reverse their decision. Remember that the verb used is not make, but it's literally the verb brick. Let us brick with bricks. The Hebrew word, Laban. When God says he's going to confuse, he reverses those three letters. Instead of Laban building bricks, he is going to Nabal, confuse. The new bet lambda is reversed. Lambda bet new. Now tell me, God is not an incredible linguist. Not only is he creating 70 different languages, but he's playing with them. He's mocking man. But God has every right to mock man in his rebellion. Man has no right to mock God in his will. God is playing with them. But then he states his divine purpose. Why is he confusing them? So that they will not understand one another's speech. Now this one another is not a simple reflexive. It means a companions, a friends, a neighbors. They won't be able to understand their neighbor's speech. The literal word here is derived from the Hebrew word husband. Someone very close. Suddenly, they won't be able to communicate anymore. God is surgically dividing mankind. Once again, I should point out, the NASB really tries very hard to smooth this out for us. But this word for language and this word for speech is the same word, lip. He confuses their border, their lip, so that they will not understand their companions' borders or lip. 
And so they're divided. Now, how exactly they're divided is a very interesting study. And I'm not going to bore you to death, Lord willing, but we are going to talk a bit about linguistics here because that was my undergrad and I don't get much opportunity to talk about it. And, you know, until we get in the text to uh, Pentecost, I don't think I'll get much more opportunity. So I'm going to take my time here. But in Genesis 11:8 says the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth. He did what he had originally purposed, what he told man to go and do, and man said, no, we won't do it. God does for man. God says, all right, you won't do this willingly. I'll drag you kicking and screaming. Now he does this once again by dividing the languages. They're no longer able to communicate one with the other. And so we have the origin of all the various languages on this earth. Now, if you've ever gone to a country that speaks another language, you can know just how confusing this is. In fact, back in 2017, before I'd ever taken Japanese, I decided on a whim to fly to Japan. It was reading break and I thought, what else am I gonna do? So I got on a plane and I got to Japan and I got lost in the middle of Osaka at three in the morning. I couldn't read a single street sign. I couldn't talk to a single person because unlike places like, I don't know, South America or even Korea, nobody speaks English. Like you can't find someone, especially at three in the morning in Osaka, who speaks English. I was lost and helpless. The same thing happened to me once when I stupidly decided to go on a layover in China. Uh, long story short, I ended up with a taxi driver throwing my bags out of the car and leaving me in the middle of nowhere. A, a tip to the world traveler, Facebook is banned in China, so if you have anything logged in like your Airbnb with Facebook, you can't access it once you get to China. So, word to the wise. Different languages cause problems for us. Causes problems in unity. We can't just go anywhere and talk to anybody. We can't just go live anywhere. Imagine if that happened right in your own town. Suddenly, nobody can talk to anybody. You're hopelessly divided. Now I'm gonna go through a few linguistic features that we can trace back to Babel and show you how this probably was a lot worse back then even than it is now. So first, we're gonna look at the families and branches See, there's between six and 7,000 languages on the earth today. So naturally that raises the question, how do we get those from just 70? Well, evolutionary scientists have a bigger problem. They have to get those from just one, which is grammatically impossible. You can't reconcile some of these grammatical schemes, as we'll see. But getting them from 70 is actually not so big a problem. If you look at the, uh, the light green or lime color, this is where the Indo, uh, sorry, Proto-Indo-European languages have spread. This is the widest spread language. It probably came uh, from um, Akkadian or some similar language that spread out after staying in Babel for a little while after the dispersion. 
This is a tree of that Indo-European language family. All of this goes back to one single ancestral language. But if you look at this map, that lime doesn't cover the whole earth. It covers a huge swath of it. Well, look at just how many languages we get from that one root. Now, this is really the biggest and the best, the grandest of all of those languages that came out of Babel because it was incredibly pervasive. From it, we get English. English comes from the Germanic root or stump of that tree. We also get those Italic and Romance languages, the Slavic languages, Greek. This all comes from that Indo-European language, but we also get Russian, Polish, Ukrainian. These are cousins. Get this, even Hindi and Punjabi, Farsi, Persian, Pashto. These are all cousins of English, distant cousins, mind you, but they come from the same language that came out of Babel. Also present in Europe, however, you see Europe isn't only an Indo-European or Indo-European language, is this Uralic branch. This has nothing to do with the Indo-European language. It's isolated and it's alone there. Hungarian, Finnish, Estonian. These are not related to English, Russian, German, Greek. It stands alone. On the left column here, we've got a list of various language families, different trees. Sorry, the, it's a little fuzzy. We've got the Indo-European. And then we've got that Uralic branch from the Ural Mountains. Then we've got the Altaic that spreads across Asia. We'll look at that. Sino-Tibetan. Remember the Sinites that came out of Babel? They went down to Tibet. The Chinese language comes from Sino-Tibetan. Malayo-Polynesian, Afro-Asiatic, Niger-Congo, Dravidian, Mayan, and a few independent language families. These probably all trace back to individual languages that came out of Babel. Guess how many they estimate there are? Between 70 and 80. I'd say there's probably 70. Oops. Um, as it goes across, for example, the Indo-European, you see those branches that come off of it, Celtic, Germanic, Latin, Slavic, Baltic, etc. From the Germanic, you get English, Dutch, German, Frisian, Flemish, Afrikaans, many different languages that are spoken around the world today. From Latin, you get those Romance languages. Actually, between Latin and these Romance languages, there was another language called Romance. That's where we get the name. From Romance came Italian, Spanish, French, Romanian. Now, when we begin to learn Spanish, we might be tricked into thinking Spanish and English are brothers. They're not. They're cousins. English and German are brothers. But we all come from the same root. We come from the same tree stump. So there are crossovers. Now we also have later additions, especially of the French language, into English. So one way that these 70 languages turned into so many others was through the creation of dialects. As these languages spread out throughout the continents, 
and they were isolated, these dialects began to turn into mutually unintelligible dialects, where they change so much and so radically that suddenly they can't be understood anymore. Now we see this starting to happen, especially in places like the Philippines and the uh, Polynesian islands, where dialects are starting to be unintelligible one with another. Whereas you go back even a couple hundred years, and they could have relations between those islands. The languages could be understood. Or you even go up into Northern Europe, and some of these languages can be understood, like Dutch is pretty widespread, but then you get into some of the branches that have come off of it, and they can't understand each other, even though they can understand Dutch. These dialects began to split and to isolate. And so we get all of these different dialects turning into individual languages, even though they come from one root. Something similar was happening in Japan, but it was stopped by uh, uniting these Japanese colonies into one government. Notice how one government can have a decisive role in dividing or not dividing the languages. In fact, all of these different native tribes in Japan came from different language influences introduced into Japan. There was the Koguryo language from Manchu. In, the, in China, there was the Ainu language that came down from Sapporo. And there was the Ryukyu and island languages that came up from the South Pacific. All of these different native languages battling it out and leaving different degrees of dialects throughout the land. Japanese was later standardized. And some of these, like the Ryukyuan Islands, say that this standardized Japanese language is imposed on them. And in a sense it is, because it's not the way their language is naturally developing. Notice even in the Korean Peninsula, all these different dialects. Now, I got pretty used to the Incheon dialect. I went down to Busan a couple of times, and I had no idea what people were yelling back and forth. And they're a lot noisier in Busan than they are in Incheon. So there was a lot of yelling. And, you know, I thought I was getting pretty good at Korean up in Incheon. I could understand what the taxi driver was saying. I could order food. I went down to Busan. No one could understand me, and I couldn't understand anyone. Now, you go to Jeju Island, and it's even worse. Because Jeju Island actually isn't a Korean language. The Korean language, once again, was imposed on the island of Jeju, which spoke a different native language. They have a dialect that's very unique. And that brings us to another form of creating language. Not only can one larger language split into multiple languages, but you can have two unrelated languages come together and make a brand new language. This doesn't erase the two languages that once existed, it creates a third. This is done through the process of pigeons and creoles. Now notice the spelling of pigeons. This is not the bird. This is a different linguistic function that we see around the globe, where two unrelated languages come together in two people groups merging. And they have to borrow vocabulary and grammar from their original language while trying to match some of the vocab and grammar from another language so that they can communicate. 
First generation language blending is called pigeons. When you have a first language, but you adapt this secondary language by which you can communicate to someone from another language. Once this becomes endemic in the culture, once people are born with their first language being that pigeon's language, this is called Creole. And this happens all the time around the earth. In fact, if you've ever been down to the south, they speak Creole down there, a blend of French and English. Some of these pidgin languages we could see here or in the northwest of the United States in the Chinook jargon. This is a pidgin language. It is a blend of English and an old native language. There is the Sango language in West Central Africa, pidgin French and English in Vietnam, and there's Sabir in the Mediterranean. As they blend, where you start to have some who still have their original first language and others who now speak that pidgin language as their first language, we see that in Sierra Leone in Creole language, Nigeria in the pidgin English, Bislama in Vanuatu Island, and Tokpisin in the Papua New Guinea. We see this in progress around the world. Languages are still developing. They're still splitting. They're still merging. They're still growing. Some of these are finished. Guyanese Creole, Haitian Creole, Caribbean Creole, and the Philippines Creole. Spanish, English, French-based. Mixing with the native languages that already exist in the land. It's not too hard to get 6,000 or 7,000 languages from 70. Just takes a couple thousand years. We also get something that is completely unexplainable by evolutionary explanations of language development. These are isolates and orphan languages. All of these black dots represent languages that have no relation to their neighbors. They're either completely alone in the world or completely alone in their region. Basque is a good example. The Basque language is only spoken on the Iberian Peninsula. It's located between France and Spain. It has absolutely no relation whatsoever to French or Spanish, or Portuguese for that matter. It probably is a leftover from the original Babel dispersion. They withstood the Muslim invasion of Spain. They withstood the other languages such as Castellan and Aragonese that were spoken there, which eventually morphed into Spanish. Spanish, you might not realize, is very closely related to Arabic through the process of pigeons. Many of the Spanish vocab words that you know are actually Arabic words. When I was down in Ecuador, my host mom was learning Arabic, and I asked her why, and she says, well, it's one of the easiest languages for us to learn. That was fascinating because it's, well, it's like Chinese to me. I do know a fair bit of Greek. A lot of the native languages in North America and South America are either orphan languages or isolate languages. This is a 
a uh, secular term for them because they can't fully explain why they are related to languages in Europe like Finnish, but they are. In fact, Turkish, Kazakh, what is that one? Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Mongolia, and Korea, all of these languages are related. They try to call Korean an orphan language, but if you look closely, it's an Altaic language. It spread across the Asian continent and landed in Korea. The Korean language is a European language. Japanese, as we saw, is another isolate language. It has no direct relatives. Actually, it's uh, better called an orphan language. They have no idea where it came from ancestrally, probably because it had an early arrival from Babel. Now here's another way that languages develop. The Japanese language is not an Asiatic language. Yes, it's located in Asia, but the language itself and why it looks like an Asian language is because it adopted Chinese writing system. And in fact, if you go back very far in their history, you see that the Samurais had to develop a system called furigana in order to understand what was written in Chinese. This tradition remains today to help children learn to read kanji, but it started with the Samurai, who would make notes on these Chinese documents that would allow them to read them. But you get two different pronunciations for each one of these kanji, or most of these kanji. You have the Chinese reading, and then you have the Japanese reading. They blend these now, but way back when, this was simply adopting someone else's writing system onto an unrelated language. One of these ways that the samurai could understand was by indicating which of the Chinese symbols was the noun in the sentence, which was the verb in the sentence, whether it was accusative or genitive. These were, or this uh, was the rise of the particle system in Japanese, because Japanese, unlike Chinese, it doesn't matter where the word is placed in the sentence, it matters what function it has grammatically, and that is indicated by particles, such as this red uh, katakana letter, which is ga, this is a noun or a subject marker. Chinese doesn't have this. This is something unique that the Japanese language developed in order to morph that writing system that didn't match their language. Now, why they had to do this was because Japanese and Chinese were so distantly related. In fact, they were probably not related at all. The means of thinking in Chinese is completely separate from the means of thinking in Japanese. One is a topic discourse language, the other is a subject predicate language. These indicate different Babel origins. Korean was heavily influenced by Japanese, but they also needed these particles, and so they added the particles into their language system. This probably came from Japanese, though. 
But now this brings us to this concept of complexity and antiquity. And this, I think, is one of the best evidences against the evolutionary uh, concept of language coming from grunts and groans into a simple language and then into a more complex language, because the earliest languages we find are so complex that sometimes we can't hope to understand them. We see, again, evidence of this even today, where languages are still simplifying themselves. Here's a list of some traditional, Jap or, uh, traditional Chinese characters. And a couple hundred years ago, or a hundred years ago or so, they went through and they simplified their characters because they were too complicated. This is a process that languages undergo constantly. In fact, if you go back to Old English, we have a declension system far beyond the declension system we have today. In the English noun, we only conjugate one, or conjugate for one person, we add an S to the third person singular. They used to conjugate every single verb. They used to decline their nouns based on plurality and person, or plurality and gender. We don't have that in English anymore. It would be ridiculous to ask what gender cat is. Cat doesn't have a gender in English, but it used to. Our languages are simplifying. Korean is a pretty unique language. Its writing system did not develop naturally. It had adopted the Japanese writing system, which had adopted the Chinese writing system, and so they had a third-party imposition. But through various wars and conquests of the Japanese and uh, Korean people, the, Jap or the Korean finally decided to throw off the shackles of Japanese suppression, and they erased the Japanese language from their language. They still have what's called hanja, but they don't use it, and more and more, they don't use those characters at all. Originally, this was done by King Sejong in about 1500. He created a brand new writing system for Korean. And he did this by observing the shape of the mouth when the consonant is formed and the position of the tongue when the vowel is voiced. He blended all those together and you get the Korean syllabary. Under there it says Sejong Daewang, King Sejong. This is right outside the uh, Japanese or the uh, Korean Imperial Palace. He is one of their most famous rulers in history, and he was a linguist. He furthered this lingui uh, linguistic separation from the cousin Japanese. Now they are completely separate languages, with some, some words and some grammatical schemes shared. But then what happened at Babel, we see is far more drastic than we might even have assumed. You see, the further back you go in any language, the more complex that language becomes. So today, if we find it difficult to learn Chinese, after almost 3,000 years of simplification, imagine just how difficult it was 3,000 years ago when it was at its most complex. I don't think man had a hope in the world back in Babel. 
of learning someone else's language. It was far too complex. Today it's simplified. Today it's a lot easier to learn some other languages and we even trick ourselves into thinking we've done an excellent, very difficult task in learning a language that's a brother or a cousin. They didn't have that luxury back then. They had to learn languages with absolutely no similarities. The only similarities would be that thoughts are voiced. That's probably it. The very basic concepts of language. Now, language and thought is something that is uh, actually the distinction between them can be a little controversial. Some linguists don't think they're linked. Others think they are intimately linked. Some think that language creates thought. Some think that thoughts create language. I lean a little bit more towards thoughts create language. We develop our language based on the way that we think. But that doesn't solve the issue of how do we learn to package these ideas that we naturally create. As we learn to package those ideas in verbal form, we learn how to organize them in our minds. We learn a system of thinking that is intimately intertwined with the way that we express those thoughts. A simple example here is how many different colors are on the screen? Two. These are related colors, right? What's the first one? Red. What's the second one? Pink. Right. These are different colors. We can all agree on that. How many colors are here? Two. What's the first one? Brown. What's the second one? Orange, right? It's pretty orange. Yeah, we can have some debate on it. I, I intended to put orange. Uh, this isn't as good as my screen. It's supposed to be orange. Does everyone agree with this split here? That on the left is English green and on the right is English, English blue? Yeah, these are supposed to be green, those are supposed to be blue. In Russian, there's three different colors here. Three different color families. Dark blue and light blue can't be distinguished dark and light. They are completely different colors. As different as pink and red. Which, when you start to think about it, why do we call those two different colors? Aren't they just different shades of red? Add some white to red, you get pink. Add some white to dark blue, you get light blue. For the Russians, these are completely distinct colors. Sini and Gulboy. For the Japanese, this is one color. This all comes under the category of, or the linguistic color category, Ao. Different languages think different things about different things. We learn to categorize based on what has been decided culturally, but when it goes back to it, our language helps us to build those categories. You can think of your language system as a kitchen. Now, between the age of one and three, you build that kitchen. All of the cabinets are in place. The fridge is there. The oven, the stove, it's all ready to be filled, filled with vocabulary, filled with utensils, 
grammatical forms like prepositions and pronouns, although today they're throwing the pronouns in the trash, our kitchens are built by two-year-olds and three-year-olds. And then they're stocked and restocked through our whole life as we build vocabulary. We build understanding of how to comprehend different grammatical concepts. Humans alone are able to communicate with something called recursion, where we put one concept inside of another concept, like the concept I saw and the boys play. We could say, I saw the boys play. Animals have simple means of communication. A dog can understand sit. Dog can't understand I saw the boy play. This is only minor complexity in a sentence. And only humans are able to comprehend that. See, our thought is intimately intertwined with our language. When God mixed up the language, he's mixing up that one devarim, or devar, that man had been united on. Man was of the same thought, the same way of thinking. Now, that's confused. Not only are their words different, the process by which they arrive at their conclusions is different. Nobody is agreeing. This is a graphic that a linguist created based on the patterns of discourse in various languages. In English, we have what's called the ABBC contract, where we state a topic, we discuss the topic, we encapsulate the discussion in a new topic, and then we discuss that discussion. This is the English form of thinking. In Semitic languages like Hebrew and Aramaic, they continue to go back to their original point. They have an ABAC contract. Orientals have an ABCD contract. They move from one thought to the next, and the concepts are contingent upon implicit information carried from one thought to the next. You can see why in uh, Japanese linguistics, they think their form of thinking is superior. They don't have to continually repeat themselves. Romance languages in Russian are fairly similar, but in Russian, these points don't have to be stated. In Romance languages, you have to state all points towards your fact. If it's known or implicitly understood in Russian, you don't have to restate it. These are drastically different ways of thinking, and notice some of these are even within the same family. The way we speak affects the way we think. The way we categorize things affects the way we express those things. That is why, as a side point here, it is so important to adopt God's categorizations of things. We can impose our ideas on his. It's not going to change reality, but it's going to change the way we think about reality. So we want to adopt God's categories. Okay, linguistics section done. Hope you guys are all still awake. I put 12-year-olds to sleep with that after giving them sugar, so I'm impressed if you guys are still awake. Once again, God mocks 
the people of Babel. They wanted a name. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. Guess who gave them their name? Not them. God. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language. They wanted to build a name for themselves based on the wonderful things that they did. God places the name on Babel. This is his conquest. Babel and confused, or confusion, are related very closely in the Hebrew. And so finally, his intention to spread mankind across the earth was fulfilled. We saw that fulfillment back in Genesis 10.32. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. God got his nation states so that he could protect man from himself. That as one moves towards rebellion, he might deal with the one rather than dealing with man as a whole and have to destroy them once again, as he did back in Noah's day. Nation states are a protection against divine judgment. It's going to take us a few months to get there, but once we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, we will see an excellent example of that. God isolated Sodom and Gomorrah as a separate nation so he could deal with them alone, rather than having to deal with the entire world for falling into the same rebellion. Now remember who Genesis is written to. It is written for our benefit, but its original audience was Israel. Its original audience was Israel in the Exodus generation. As they were about to go into their land, as God was going to consolidate them in one place. God gives them a warning. Here we see the result of rebelling against God. God is going to bend you to his will. And one means which he has in his tool belt is scattering across the earth. In Deuteronomy 32, 8, Remember, God said he had in mind at the scattering of Babel, the future of Israel. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. He wants Israel to see the connection between Babel and Israel, the results of rebellion against God's will, his judgment. Now, God does use these judgments to bring about his will, and Israel will be conformed to his will. Israel will be saved, but not by their own efforts, but by God's. But here is the threat given to Israel. If they do not obey God's law, the Mosaic law that he gave to them when they went into the land, they would go through cycles of judgment and blessing, based on their adherence to this, uh, this code of living in fellowship with God, this Mosaic law. He prophesied that they would be scattered. They would be taken out of their land for a time. They would be brought in. They would be taken out again. They would be brought in, and they would be scattered over the whole earth. But he does not ever take away his promises to them that they would be made a nation. Exodus 19, 5 they will 
be a nation for his glory. But this is going to happen in the meantime. And so in Deuteronomy 30, God promises that restoration after they have been scattered. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the cursing which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today and you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. God can scatter and he can bring back together. And he is going to do that with Israel. And in fact, he is doing that with Israel. And that, I think, is why it is so important to uh, not stop here, but to go on to the rest of Genesis 11, the next two weeks. Because here at the scattering at Babel, we're left with no hope. There's no skin covering promised here. Remember at the fall, God covered them in skins, promising an atonement, something to draw them back together with God. At Cain's casting away, he was given a promise of protection. Even in judgment, God provides grace. After the flood, God provided a rainbow promise that he would not ever again destroy all the people of the earth. And so we are left wanting for a solution. You see, this dispensation of human government is over. The experiment was tried and it was failed. Man did not succeed in doing what God told them to spread out their governments across the earth and rule themselves responsibly. That judgment was dispersion, but we do get the divine grace of God. He is going to pull out a peculiar people for his purposes, one that he can isolate and deal with all on its own, one through which he can bring to the earth the word of God. He can have a language which preserves this word, a language that's protected, that doesn't go through this pigeons and creoles or dialect divisions. It has some changes, but we can still read Moses' writing. We can still read the post-exilic prophet's writing. God pulls out Israel for the special purpose of bringing about the Messiah, the word of God in flesh. God's special grace to this divided world is Israel, and he uses it for his purposes, his purposes of salvation. Through Israel comes the savior of the world, but also for his original creation purpose to have man rule over the earth. It's not the throne of England that Jesus will sit on. It's not the throne of Tibet. It's the throne of Israel in Jerusalem that Jesus Christ will sit and rule over this earth and God's creation purpose and his salvation purpose will be complete. He will be victorious in this world. So our takeaway this morning, God will not be mocked. 
His will will not be thwarted by any evil plan of man. What he has said will come about perfectly as he has said it. And we can confidently rest in all of his purposes. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your Son, who is both Savior and King. We thank you that you will bring about all of your promises to Israel and to us. We thank you that based on the fulfilled promises, we can trust in those future promises left to us, such as the resurrection. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.